This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to cure yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All of that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry and along the way trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and also to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome back to this podcast, which was pre-recorded to be aired initially on Wednesday, November 2nd. I hope that you've been feeling well. And we're going to start tonight's podcast with a topic that's received a lot of attention lately, and for very good reasons. It's all about meditation. Our first subject, yes, meditation, something that used to be thought of as the purview of Indian yogis and something from the hippie era of the 60s, certainly something that wasn't associated with hard science, neuroscience, scientific studies done at major medical universities, uh, articles about it published in scholarly, peer-reviewed, respected mainstream medical journals. And yet, that is what we have to say about the state of meditation here in 2016, soon to be 2017. It has moved from this pseudoscience status that it used to have into the mainstream of hard science. More proof than ever that meditation is the real deal and it is a legitimate means of coping better with stress. So people are studying it and finding out more and more about its benefits. And what we're going to be talking about is a study done at Michigan State University. And there's a lot of talk about mindfulness meditation. That's most of what is getting all this attention. Uh, The key here being that you uh, just let your mind drift and whatever thoughts come into your mind, you don't try to fight them. You just let your mind go where it will. And this is the key to having meditation be a stress-relieving function. Now, a lot of people, oddly enough, don't really get the idea and the concept of, well, 
Okay, so I get that meditation helps. I should try it. It would help me relieve my stress. But what do, what exactly do I do or don't do? How does it work? And there are now a plethora of smartphone apps that will help you with that. <clears throat> so now this study comes along and reassuringly tells us that meditation can help tame your emotions even if you're not an especially mindful person. The study was published in the journal Frontiers in Human Neuroscience. Right, that's neuroscience. Yes, an article about meditation. Psychology researchers recorded the brain activity of people looking at disturbing pictures immediately after meditating for the first time. These participants were able to tame their negative emotions just as well as participants who were naturally mindful. The findings not only demonstrate that meditation improves or at least enhances emotional health, but that people can acquire these benefits regardless of their natural or innate ability to be mindful. It just takes some practice. Now that's the key. <clears throat> like anything else, meditation is a skill and it needs to be developed, taught, learned, and practiced. Meditation is not something you just sit down and start seeing and uh, start doing, rather, um, in order to see the benefits of it. <clears throat> so it's not as if you should expect it to be something that comes to you easily or readily. Uh, for some people, it might be that way. For others, it might take a longer period of developing the aptitude for it and practicing it. Now, <clears throat> mindfulness defined as a moment-by-moment -moment awareness of one's thoughts, feelings, and sensations has gained worldwide popularity as a way to promote health and well-being. But the study is looking at the issue of, okay, what if someone isn't naturally mindful? Can they become so simply by trying to make mindfulness a state of mind? Or perhaps through a more focused, deliberate effort like meditation? And this study attempted to find out. Researchers assessed 68 subjects for their degree of mindfulness <clears throat> using a scientifically validated survey. I found this very interesting. Uh, had no idea that there was what the article references as a scientifically validated survey to measure one's degree of mindfulness. But in a way it makes sense because Mindfulness meditation has become so popular and such a burgeoning area of scientific endeavor that, you know, I get some people would want to say, all right, well, who's a good candidate for it and who's not? But alas, the article about this research doesn't mention <clears throat> what the name of this survey is. For that, we'd have to explore the full text of the article. Again, it was published in frontiers in human neuroscience. So they took these participants after doing this survey of their 
mindfulness, and they randomly assign them to engage in an 18-minute audio-guided meditation or to listen to a control presentation, which was how to learn a new language. Uh, again, similar time frame spent quietly listening to something, but not a meditation exercise. That's the control group to compare mindfulness meditation versus not mindfulness meditation, sort of the placebo, if you will, compared to the active treatment. And then they showed these participants negative pictures, such as a bloody corpse. Now, let's let's pause right there. Um, I get that the researchers wanted to test the effects and especially the benefits of mindfulness meditation, but, you know, I wonder about the ethics of showing people pictures of bloody corpses. Uh, and I mean this seriously, I'm not being the least bit sarcastic. What if somebody has had a very traumatic experience? Um, and that's the last thing they need to be taking a look at, a picture like that. You know, perhaps the researchers screen subjects for things, and certainly they had to sign consent forms, and certainly it had to be approved by a human subject research review committee if it was done at a major university like Michigan State. But still, uh, something about using that as the intervention to test the effectiveness of the mindfulness meditation really does not sit well with me. Okay, but we'll overlook that. For better or for worse, that's what they did. And then they recorded brain activity of the subjects while all of this was going on. The participants who had meditated, who had varying levels of their own natural mindfulness, showed similar levels of emotion regulatory brain activity as people with high levels of natural mindfulness. In other words, their emotional brains recovered quickly after viewing troubling photos, essentially keeping their negative emotions in check. So I guess what they're saying is, look, whether you're mindful or not, and to whatever degree, if you practice mindfulness meditation, it will help keep your emotional regulation intact, such that you could even recover faster after looking at disturbing images compared to someone who had not done any meditation at all. Now, they weren't satisfied just with that. In addition, they had some of the participants look at the gruesome photos mindfully. Really? Uh, that is, to be in a mindful state of mind while looking at these disturbing pictures, while other subjects received no such instruction. Interestingly, the people who viewed the photos mindfully showed no better ability to keep their negative emotions in check. Showing, I guess, that there are some limits of mindfulness when it comes to looking at disturbing images. But this suggests that for the non-meditators, the emotional benefits of mindfulness might be better achieved through meditation rather than just forcing it as a state of mind. 
if you're a naturally mindful person and you're walking around very aware of things, you're good to go. You shed your emotions quickly. If you're not naturally mindful, then meditating can make you look like a person who walks around with a lot of mindfulness. But for people who are not naturally mindful and have never meditated, forcing oneself to be mindful in the moment doesn't work. You'd be better off meditating for 20 minutes, whether you're mindful or not. Well, a long way around to show that mindfulness meditation has benefits no matter what your natural innate level of mindfulness is. Uh, we can debate the ethics of the methods they chose, but again, more evidence that mindfulness meditation can be helpful. We are back with more mental health news after this first break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including news about the health of the brain. Fortunately, in recent years, the greater attention being paid 
to the consequences of concussions in professional sports, most famously, or I should say most notoriously, in professional football, but also in other sports, uh, basketball, baseball, and hockey. Uh, there is an article about changes in the brain in soccer when heading a soccer ball that I think very important to discuss with you, uh, especially since youth soccer has been steadily becoming more popular over the last several decades. And as uh, there are more and more professional uh, soccer games that take place in the United States, uh, this article comes to us from the University of Sterling, uh, and it explores the true impact of heading a soccer ball, identifying small but significant changes in brain function immediately after routine heading practice. The study is from Scotland's University for Sporting Excellence, and it was published in a journal called eBioMedicine. And they say it is the first study to detect direct changes in the brain after players are exposed to everyday head impacts as opposed to clinical brain injuries like concussion. In other words, it's clear what the negative impact is of concussion. But what about uh, these routine blows to the head uh, when someone is purposely hitting a soccer ball traveling at great speed with their head, um, but not having any concussive symptoms. A group of soccer players headed a ball 20 times. The balls were fired at them from a machine designed to stimulate, sorry, to simulate, not simulate, simulate the pace and power of a corner kick. For those of you who play soccer, you're familiar with this. The corner kick comes in and the player tries to head it into the goal. Before and after the heading sessions, scientists tested the player's brain function and memory. They found increased inhibition in the brain after just a single session of this heading drill. Memory test performance was also reduced by between 41 and 67 percent and the effects normalized within 24 hours. Now whether the changes to the brain remain temporary after repeated exposure to a soccer ball and what are the long-term consequences of heading on brain health, these are yet to be investigated. Played by more than 250 million people worldwide, the beautiful game, as it's called, mostly in, in Europe, often involves intentional and repeated bursts of heading a ball. In recent years, the possible link between brain injury in sport and increased risk of dementia has focused attention on whether soccer ball heading might lead to long-term consequences for brain health. A cognitive neuroscientist from the psychology department at University of Sterling said 
in light of growing concern about the effects of contact sports on brain health, we wanted to see if our brain reacts instantly to hitting a soccer ball. Using a drill most amateur and professional teams would be familiar with, we found there was, in fact, increased inhibition in the brain immediately after heading and that performance on memory tests was reduced significantly. And they go on to say, although the changes were temporary, we believe they are significant to brain health, particularly if they happen over and over again, as they do in soccer ball heading. With large numbers of people around the world participating in this sport, it is important that they are aware of what is happening inside the brain and the lasting effect this may have. <clears throat> now, a, an expert in exercise physiology um, added the following, for the first time, sporting bodies and members of the public can see clear evidence of the risks associated with repetitive impact caused by heading a soccer ball. We hope these findings will open up new approaches for detecting, monitoring, and preventing cumulative brain injuries in sports. We need to safeguard the long-term health of soccer players at all levels, as well as individuals involved in other contact sports. Now, things have gotten better the increased attention to concussions and head injuries has filtered down from professional ranks to college and even to high school, where now it's common for athletic trainers to be present to evaluate high school athletes uh, at all sporting events, uh, wrestling, basketball, baseball, football, what have you. And... That certainly is very helpful that more attention is being paid. But that I know of, this is the first time someone has taken a look at the purposeful using of the head as an offensive weapon in the sport, as opposed to in any other case uh, that we've described up until now, uh, contact with the head is accidental and not a key part of how the sport is played. This is a different story, uh, unless we're talking about boxing, where, of course, the idea is to uh, cause uh, repeated uh, blows to the head till someone loses consciousness. We'll, uh, we'll not editorialize about that. But regardless, uh, I think if it were to be found that there were lasting and permanent damage to the brain uh, that could be attributed to heading a soccer ball repeatedly, uh, this would certainly be major, major news in uh, a sport that's popular worldwide and played by men and women, followed by millions if not billions and uh, an extremely passionate um, fan following as well. Um, I think for the time being, the take-home point is if you or your children or grandchildren play soccer, this is definitely something to be aware of, and uh, it, um, I think it would be good for coaches to limit 
any heading drills and uh, also to uh, rotate in the players who are <clears throat> uh, sent in to take the corner kick and try to somehow get it into the goal in order to avoid one athlete having to head the ball repeatedly during a particular soccer match. Um, to me, you know, these are the only logical conclusions after reading about this research. Now, <clears throat> let's stick with the same type of subject and uh, look at youth football, or that is American football. Soccer is called football in the rest of the world. And this study comes to us from the Radiological Society of North America, where researchers found measurable brain changes in children after a single season of playing youth football, even without a concussion diagnosis. That's right. One season of youth football with no concussion, measurable changes in the brain. And the study was published in the journal Radiology. According to USA Football, there are approximately 3 million young athletes participating in organized tackle football across the country. Numerous reports have emerged in recent years about the possible risks of brain injury while playing youth sports and the effects it may have on developing brains. However, most of the research has looked at changes in the brain as a result of concussions. Most investigators believe that concussions are certainly very, very harmful for the brain, but what about the hundreds of head impacts during a season of football that don't lead to a clinically diagnosed concussion? Researchers wanted to see if cumulative subconcussive head impacts have any effects on the developing brain. And the lead author, Dr. Christopher Whitlow, Associate Professor and Chief of Neuroradiology at Wake Forest School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The research team he headed up studied 25 male youth football players between the ages of 8 to 13. Head impact data were recorded using the head impact telemetry system called HITS, which has been used in other studies of high school and collegiate football to assess the frequency and severity of helmet impacts. In this study, the HITS data were analyzed to determine the risk weighted cumulative exposure associated with a single season of play. The study participants underwent pre- and post-season evaluation with multimodal neuroimaging, including diffusion tensor imaging, or DTI, of the brain. DTI is an advanced MRI technique, and you're familiar with MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. This is commonly used in everyday medical practice. Perhaps you yourself have had an MRI scan, maybe not in the brain, maybe of the knee or shoulder or hip. In any case, the DTI 
identifies microstructural changes in the brain's white matter. In addition, all games and practices were video recorded and reviewed to confirm the accuracy of the impacts. All right, well, I think we'll pause here to take our next commercial break. When we come back, we'll continue to describe the techniques of the study and review the findings, as well as other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back after this break. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking now about youth football. And even though there might not be concussions, researchers are seeing brain changes, something that may give you pause before you let your child play football. Now, to explain a little bit about what they saw, the brain's white matter is composed of millions of nerve fibers called axons. These act like communication cables connecting various regions of the brain. This diffusion tensor imaging they used produces a measurement called fractional anisotropy of the movement of water molecules in the brain and along these axons. In healthy white matter, the direction of water movement is fairly uniform and measures high in FA. When water movement is more random, these FA values decrease which has been associated with brain abnormalities in some studies. The results showed a significant relationship between head impacts and decreased FA 
in specific white matter tracts and tract terminals where white and gray matters meet. They found that these young players who experienced more cumulative head impact exposure had more changes in their brain white matter in specific parts of the brain. These changes caught the researchers' attention because they've seen similar changes in the setting of mild traumatic brain injury. And this is in players who had no signs or symptoms of concussion. Now, they don't know if these are important functional changes or if they will be associated with any long-term negative outcomes. <clears throat> and the researchers admit that football, of course, is a physical sport. And players may have many physical changes after a season of play, and it may completely resolve. But the changes in the brain, while they may also resolve a little consequence, deserve further research to understand exactly what they mean. So to sum up what they found, basically using this highly sophisticated imaging method, they saw changes in the brain that are similar to what someone suffers from a mild traumatic brain injury. And this is without there having been a concussion. Now, <clears throat> I think that um, it's not too big a leap to uh, extend this to thinking about what are the long-term consequences. Let's say uh, a child shows exceptional ability in youth football. They go on to play in junior high and high school, and let's say they show really exceptional ability and uh, get signed to play uh, Division I football with an athletic scholarship, and let's say they further show exceptional play there and are lucky enough to be drafted into the professional ranks, the National Football League. You add up the cumulative effect of all of these impacts in all the practices and all the games, and I submit to you that it cannot be ruled out that someone could have uh, signs associated with CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, by the time their NFL career is done, even if they've never had a single concussion. Um, <clears throat> I'm not against young people playing football. I just think that in order to protect the brain uh, for a lifetime, technology has to advance as far as the protective equipment. Um, you know, I, I would hope that um, athletic equipment companies would seek out <clears throat> the most sophisticated engineers and put them on this problem and say, hey, you know, what can reasonably be done to protect these players better uh, without interfering with their ability to play the game. In other words, you, know, you want them to be protected, but you don't want their equipment uh, hindering their natural uh, athletic ability and their skill. All right, well, we'll turn our attention to post-traumatic stress disorder next on tonight's podcast. For decades... Neuroscientists and physicians have tried to get to the bottom of the age-old mystery 
of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD to explain why is it that some people are vulnerable and why they experience so many symptoms and so much disability while others exposed to similar traumas are more resilient and do not wind up suffering from PTSD. All experts now agree that PTSD indeed has its roots in very real, very physical processes within the brain and not in some sort of psychological weakness. But no clear consensus has emerged about what exactly has gone wrong in the brain. In a uh, perspective article published in the journal Neuron, a pair of University of Michigan Medical School professors who have studied PTSD from many angles for many years put forth a theory of PTSD that draws from and integrates decades of prior research. They hope to stimulate interest in the theory and invite others in the field to test it. The bottom line, they say, is that people with PTSD appear to suffer from disrupted context processing. That is a core brain function that allows people and animals to recognize that a particular stimulus may require different responses depending on the context in which it is encountered. It's what allows us to call upon the right emotional or physical response to the current encounter. <clears throat> a simple example is recognizing that a mountain lion seen in the zoo does not require a fear or flight response, while the same lion unexpectedly encountered in the backyard probably does. For someone with PTSD, a stimulus associated with the trauma they previously experienced, such as a loud noise or a particular smell, triggers a fear response even when the context is very safe. That's why they react even if the noise came from the front door being slammed or the smell comes from dinner being accidentally burned on the stove. <clears throat> so you might ask, well, if they're saying it's not psychological weakness, is not this context processing a psychological process? No, and we'll now go into the physical aspects of that. Context processing involves a very specific brain region, the hippocampus, which is also a brain region involved with memory and the emotional aspects of memory. And there's also connections from the hippocampus to two other regions of the brain, the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. Research has shown that activity in these brain areas is disrupted in PTSD patients. The Michigan team thinks their theory can unify wide-ranging evidence by showing how a disruption in this circuit can interfere with context processing and can explain most of the symptoms and much of the biology of PTSD. They hope to put some order to all the information 
that's been gathered about PTSD from studies of human patients and of animal models of the condition. <clears throat> and they hope to create a testable hypothesis, which isn't as common in mental health research as it should be. If the hypothesis proves true, then maybe they can unravel some of the underlying pathological processes and offer better, more specific, more targeted treatments. Models of PTSD that exist include abnormal fear learning, which is rooted in the amygdala, which is the brain's fight-or-flight center that focuses on response to threats or safe environments. This model emerged from work on fear conditioning, fear extinction, and fear generalization. The second, exaggerated threat detection, is rooted in the brain regions that figure out what signals from the environment are salient or important to take note of and react to. This model focuses on vigilance and disproportionate responses to perceived threats. The third, involving executive function and regula regulation of emotions, is mainly rooted in the prefrontal cortex, the brain's center for keeping emotions in check and planning or switching between tasks. The main thing is that context is not only information about your surroundings, it's pulling out the correct emotion and memories for the context you are in. A deficit in context processing would lead PTSD patients to feel unmoored from the world around them, unable to shape their responses. <clears throat> and instead of their brains uh, fitting their responses to the current context, their brain would impose an internalized context, one that always expects danger from every situation. This type of deficit, which could arise in the brain due to a combination of genetic predisposition and difficult life experiences, may create vulnerability to PTSD in the first place. After trauma, this would generate symptoms of hypervigilance, sleeplessness, intrusive thoughts and dreams, and inappropriate emotional and physical outbursts. The researchers are currently recruiting people with PTSD, whether veterans or not, for studies involving brain imaging and other tests. In the meantime, they note there's a growing set of therapeutic tools to help PTSD patients, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness training, medications, helping anchor patients in their current environment and may prove more effective as research specifically learn how to strengthen context processing capabilities in the brain. All right, we'll wrap up our thoughts about this study and have more mental health-related news when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back after a short break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? 
and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed. We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Just to wrap up our discussion about the University of Michigan PTSD study, I do think it's important to figure out what is different about the people who suffer from PTSD after going through a trauma from those who don't. Um, And it's also important to move away from any type of uh, blaming the victim, uh, seeing them as weak and not resilient, so I like the idea that they're taking what we know of to be the fear circuit um, in the brain involving three important areas, the prefrontal cortex, uh, <clears throat> which um, is far as processing um, information about fearful stimuli, uh, the amygdala, which um, you know, is basically your fear center. It assigns... Um, emotional aspects to fearful stimuli, and the hippocampus, which uh, has important functions as far as memory about fearful stimuli, and saying, well, no, it's not a question of weakness or lack of resilience. There's something wrong in how this circuit works. And yes, that can be affected by previous trauma, but there's also got to be some sort of genetic predisposition for this contextual processing to go awry among these three brain regions. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's very interesting, even potentially groundbreaking work, but it uh, remains to be seen if they can come up with a way to test their model out and confirm it. And furthermore, if they can do that, find a way to better treat 
PTSD and even hopefully find a way to prevent it. Next up on Psychiatry Today. Well, further emphasizing the links between the emotional state and physical illness, uh, demonstrating that psychiatric illness is real and it is physical and it does affect the body. Here is a study from the Yale Cancer Center showing that changes in depression symptoms are tied to lung cancer survival. Worsening depression symptoms are associated with shorter survival for lung cancer patients, particularly those in the early stages of disease, according to a new study. Now, we're going to get into the details uh, shortly, but the initial reaction might be, well, if someone is more depressed, could that be just because their illness is more severe and they're more likely to die anyway? Well, again, they, they are talking about looking at depression in the early stages of the disease where um, it would not necessarily uh, be so easy to predict who would not have a good outcome. But let's see more of the details. Now, <clears throat> oh, they also say, conversely, that when depression symptoms lift, survival tends to improve. So that, again, bolsters the argument that the depression symptoms are playing a direct role in the ability to survive or not. Now, um, depression remission was associated with what they called a mortality benefit, as they had the same mortality as never depressed patients. So if you recovered from your depression, uh, you were uh, able to survive at the same rate as someone who never had depression. Now, the authors admit the study can't prove causation, but it does lend support to the idea that looking out for depression symptoms in lung cancer patients and treating them, hopefully successfully, could provide a significant impact on their treatment outcomes, even, again, reducing their risk of mortality from their lung cancer. The researchers followed more than 1,700 patients who were newly diagnosed with lung cancer between 2003 and 2005, and they had completed an eight-item depression assessment scale when they were first diagnosed with lung cancer, and then again 12 months later. Almost 40%, or 681 people, had symptoms of depression when they were first diagnosed, and 14%, or 105 people, developed symptoms in a sort of new onset of depression during the course of their treatment for lung cancer. Overall, those who were depressed at the beginning of the study period were 17% more likely to die during the follow-up period than those who didn't have symptoms of depression. This study was published online on October the 3rd in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Compared to the 640 people who never developed depression symptoms, 
the 105 who had the new onset symptoms were 50% more likely to die. Another 254 people whose depression symptoms persisted throughout the study period were 42% more likely to die. <clears throat> now, at this point in reading the article, I thought to myself, it would have been really great if they took those 105 and seen, you know, how were there differences between those who were successfully treated for their depression or not. Now, uh, those who had symptoms of depression when they were first diagnosed with lung cancer, but were not depressed a year later, had just as good an outcome or similar risk of death compared to those who never had depression in the first place. And the researchers didn't have any data on how or why these patients experienced remission of depression. Um, <clears throat> much as that might seem surprising, sometimes that does happen. Uh, depression may spontaneously remit, and it may happen after six, eight, nine months, but yes, that does happen whether you have lung cancer or not. We have known that since the 1970s uh, that a cancer diagnosis sets off a typical period of existential plight, a period that lasts about 100 days, during which people ask questions of life and death and worry about their health and the meaning of their physical symptoms. Although from the study, it can't be said that treating depression would extend survival. Other studies have shown that care aimed at improving the psychosocial well-being, which includes but is not limited to detecting and treating depression, does have a survival benefit. Depression, of course, impacts quality of life and has been associated with missed medical appointments, lower adherence to recommended treatments, which could in and of themselves impact mortality. But most of all, <clears throat> a positive attitude, fighting spirit, coping ability may significantly impact a patient's ability to persevere in the face of a life-threatening illness. Not to mention to persevere in the face of an extremely debilitating chemotherapy regimen. This is likely why married patients and those with strong social support networks have better cancer outcomes compared to single folks and people without strong social support networks. Having a community, as it were, to help share the emotional burden is essential. Just more evidence that mental and physical health are inextricably linked, and I would take that a step further and argue that there is no meaningful distinction uh, between mental and physical. Clinicians have to do a better job of treating the whole person and not focusing on the disease only. From the patient's perspective, hopefully some of them will take a look at this and realize the feelings they are experiencing are common, and they will be empowered to advocate for themselves and ask their clinicians for help or resources when they need it. I also think that it has become 
uh, more common that oncology clinics include mental health professionals and oncologists are more sensitive to the idea that cancer patients may suffer from depression and the course of their illness will greatly benefit from their depression being treated. Next on Psychiatry Today, more than 50% of Americans now have at least one chronic health condition, mental disorder, or substance use issue. Um, the next time you hear my podcast, we'll have a new president-elect. And with the future of U.S. health care likely to rest on that next presidency, this new study from Psychology, Health, and Medicine highlights just how complex the medical needs of many Americans now are. And with a lot of negative news about healthcare in the country, uh, this study has even more sobering information. Health of individuals in the U.S. is increasingly being defined by complexity and multimorbidity, the co-occurrence of two or more chronic medical conditions. Um, they fa- uh, the authors found that 18.4% of adults had a mental illness in the past year, 8.6% substance abuse independence, 40% one or more chronic medical conditions, and 14.7% living in poverty. This is a bad combination. When looked at together, um, of all the people who had chronic conditions and any mental illness, you're looking at about 2.2 million people who had chronic health conditions, mental illness, and substance abuse all together. And the study really laid bare the association between mental illness and substance abuse. Those with mental illness are more than three times likely to report substance abuse and dependence, and almost one and a half more likely to report a chronic medical condition and 1.2 times more likely to live in poverty. Uh, So this combination um, is going to be a big drain on the healthcare system in the United States. No matter who wins um, the election, they're going to have to confront this issue. So what the future holds for the 50% of Americans suffering from multiple health challenges remains to be seen. And that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. Hope you found the information that I enjoyed bringing to you interesting and informative. And I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we get together, no matter who wins. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.